Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with David Johnston, who's the founder and managing director of Property Planning Australia. Now, David is a mortgage broker, but far more than that, he's a property planning specialist. So we have a chat to him about all of the boring stuff, but it's very important stuff, right? It's setting the plan about what you're trying to achieve with property, including where you're wanting to live, what sort of retirement income you're looking at, what your risk profile is prior to purchasing the property to make sure it fits your strategies and goals. It's a very great interview on the planning side of investing in property, which I think is one of the key reasons why property investors aren't hitting their goals. So here is David to run us all through that. David Johnson, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. A pleasure on this end as well, mate. Been looking forward to having you. But for people that haven't heard of you before, David, can you kick us off by letting us know who you are and what you specialise in? Yeah, sure. So my company is Property Planning Australia. We've been around for 15 years and one of the first companies to provide independent property advice way back in 2004. And uh, we had buyer's agents back then in-house before most people knew what a buyer's agent was. We've evolved a lot over that journey and today we specialise in developing property plans for people, strategic mortgage broking and property selection support. Within that also assisting people with money management as well. Beautiful. I'm looking forward, with all due respect to buyers, agents, having uh, someone from a company that doesn't have any on the staff. We've had quite a run actually. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, we intentionally don't have buyer's agents because we see that as a real point of differentiation and independence for us. So, yeah. Now, what about growing up, David? What posters were on the bedroom wall when you were a youngster? Yeah, you made me think back. um, You're not that old. I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm starting to get old, older. Yeah, look, it was a a mix of, I, I suppose, sport. Surfing and music on my walls. Yeah, I think sort of towards my later teenage years, or the, the walls were fairly covered. <laughs> <laughs> and how much uh, sport, surfing, and music do you get into these days? The surfing's definitely fallen away since having kids, but I still, yeah, I still play and a fair bit of, you know, keep active with sport and enjoy music but certainly don't listen to as much as I once did yeah I think the best of Billy Giles getting a fairly good run at the moment there you go (laughs) that's the inside tip what about property David how did you first get involved in property and what was your first investment my first investment was a two-bedroom unit in Kew East which is a leafy inner eastern suburb in Melbourne and it was one of six in a two-level block, sort of 60s, 70s built. And, yeah, it turns out, well, I couldn't – this was before I sort of understood what drives property values. But fortunately, I couldn't buy something new and shiny, but that actually turned out well. It was fortunate that it ended up being, you know, pre- yeah, pretty good, pretty good investment. You haven't still got it? No, no. I, uh, yeah, unfortunately sold us and, you know, it's it cost me a fair bit of 
money over the journey if I had have still held on to it today and but you know it's a good lesson and one I can talk about with clients <laughs> exactly and uh, yeah good themes for the podcast as well now David you know you've you've given us a uh, I guess a, a, a bit of an aspirational look at you with the surfing and the music and that sort of stuff so I'm just I'm interested in what you wanted to do when you were in school and 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 where all those dreams sort of came crashing down to earth and you got a job in a bank well, they obviously came crashing down at some point along the journey. But to be honest, I was I was pretty excited to be getting a job in the bank. Started working full time just before I finished my uni degree. And but as a kid, I look I loved playing sport and I suppose I was pretty strong at maths and yeah, so I guess, you know, I wanted to be a professional sportsman as every every kid does or every second kid does along the way and yeah i guess i found myself in a bank <laughs> i'm being a bit unfair to you obviously uh, landing a banking job just while you're in uni's pretty good i'm sure the parents were proud so talk us through that that time in your life um obviously you continued on in the banking after uni it, it was that sort of your insight into the finance world that that led you to go towards broking yeah so i well, I ended up being three and a half years at a one of the big four, and actually through a through a friend who I played football and cricket with, another guy who we played cricket with had a pretty successful um, insurance business, and he was looking for someone to set up his mortgage breaking arm. And I, well, I was twenty three at the time, and I wanted to learn from successful people. And this opportunity arose and I thought I'd have a go. And that was way back in 1999 when, you know, no one knew what a mortgage broker was, but it sounded like there was, you know, a lot of scope for growth in the industry. And yeah, so I think my parents probably weren't quite as excited about that decision, and leaving it, leaving the safety of a bank as they were when I found, landed the job with the bank. But I thought, you know, it was worth taking a risk. I was relatively young and, yes, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. But, you know, I decided to take that leap of faith and, yeah, began as a mortgage broker uh, just then 24 and in 99, obviously, brokers were around. It was a pretty well-established profession. But as you say, not a lot of people had heard of them. Were, were they doing a, a reasonable percentage of transactions? And, and what what does the sort of yeah. landscape look like now compared to then? Yeah, look, back then, although people had heard of a mortgage broker, mostly you only went to a mortgage broker if you're in real trouble, you couldn't get finance, and you usually would pay them a fee to help find your solution but it was just the early days of I guess the non-bank lenders starting to be able to compete and the deregulation of the banking industry was kicking in and they realized that they could get a distribution channel through brokers so they started paying commissions and so it was just the very early days of that you know I think it was probably somewhere around only one to three percent of all mortgages back then wow. were done through brokers, whereas now, um, you know, it's up around 60% of all mortgages. Yeah. So it's very, very different. 
And obviously, you're a you're a, a property nerd, if you don't mind me saying. Were, were were you interested in the broking sort of stuff because of the property aspect, or did did the property sort of uh, analysis and asset selection stuff come subsequent to the broking work? Yeah, it probably came after that. I guess one thing I was always motivated to do was to learn how to understand how to manage my own money and in and invest my money successfully. And that was probably my primary motivator. But, you know, I I went banking to mortgage broking and then I started, you know, it just became really clear I was getting as many questions about property, give or take, as mortgage advice. And so then that that, that piqued my interest in yeah, uh, the journey of becoming a property nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to dive into that for sure. But just sticking with finance, uh, it'd be remiss of me not to sort of talk about some of the, the headlines. We've had a real sort of drop off in the in the last, you know, 12, 24 months with investor lending. There's been a, a couple of big changes with APRA. We've had Westpac versus ASIC just sort of semi-recently, but I guess it'll be, you know, it's almost old news, let alone when this podcast comes out. But can you run us through the key sort of milestones of what's happened in in the finance world in the last little while? Well, the election was a big one. Prior to the election, there, I think government and regulators were getting concerned about the strength of the economy and the drop in property values. They, They managed and manufactured, I think, quite well, really, but then it was, they were starting to get overly concerned about how far it might drop. And, you know, there was talk of the 20% reductions and some real bears about what was going to happen to our property market. So prior to the election, they'd started removing things like the investor lending growth cap, the cap on interest-only loans. So there were already some, I guess, mechanisms being taken away to make it easier to borrow money again. And then, well, as we all know, the Liberals won the election and things really started to ramp up from there. Then the RBA has reduced rates twice in the last last couple of months, a few months. The APRA, a huge one that has just happened in the last month or so with the APRA benchmark assessment rate dropping right from low 7% down to 5.5% as a minimum. So that is not that everyone borrows to their maximum capacity, but the, I guess, area where most you know, middle-income people can afford to buy, that's where they'll, we'll see the most movement and that's where there's the most stock. So I do think it'll have the greatest impact on property values. So that's occurred. And I still think that's just early days of playing out. So then if you flow down from that, we've seen CoreLogic's property values over the last three months. So we're just, as recording, this is the 2nd of September. So June, July, August, Melbourne and Sydney have started to rise. In fact, August has seen all three of those months. August has seen Melbourne and Sydney have a jump around one point, well, Sydney 1.57% and Melbourne 1.4%. So if we extrapolate those out, that's an annual growth rate of 18.84% and 16.8% for Melbourne. So I don't think we're going to see growth to that level, but, you know, the auction clearance rates at 70 to 80%, the five capital city index, 
just jumped over a percent. Extrapolate that out, it's 12%. SQM research have just come out and said they could feasibly see properties growing by 10% over the next 12 months. So, <laughs> you know, there's certainly a lot of upward <laughs> upward pressure. It's a bit sort of weird on the back of the, the listing volumes and things though, right? I mean, obviously people are holding off listing their property for the spring selling season and they're just, no one wants to put their house on the market when they feel like there's, you know, it's it's really dampened. So we should we should probably see that maybe a little bit more as a as a blip and as more property comes on the clearance rates maybe soften a little bit and we we have you know maybe more sort of in the five percent year on year growth do you think yeah i'd surmise that and wrote a wrote a blog in the last month or two that i could see a increase by five percent and maybe a reasonably rapid increase i guess you know we've already had one and a half to two percent now in those three months but I don't know, yeah, certainly the extra stock, how much that changes the animal spirits, if you like, that might be starting to build back into the property market. I do think it'll run out of steam because, you know, we are quite an indebted nation, you know, in terms of our mortgage debt for as consumers. So I think it'll hit a level, whatever that level is, and then it'll stay pretty steady for for a period of time that that's my read but yeah what do you think well yeah i i think as you say there's going to be some modest growth i i would think there's there's obviously been some pent-up demand because transaction volumes haven't been doing anything and in my experience people don't sort of suddenly not want to buy a property it's just the timing isn't right or the finance isn't there and that sort of thing so yeah i'm expecting it to be a a positive year double digits I'm imminently aware, as I can see my little recording bar thing, that this is on public record now. But I don't, I don't, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think we're going to see double digits. What about on the on the finance side of things? What what can we expect to, to change? What, what what's the appetite for lending to investors from the the banks? And and what are the big sort of arguments? I, I know they've been talking about the the household expenditure metrics, and there's a few issues around that. Occasionally, you also see banks sort of saying, "Well, we're blacklisting this suburb." Where where are we at right now with that sort of stuff? Well, Westpac just won their case with ASIC that the household expenditure measurement, which is based on, I guess, a minimum estimate of living costs that someone would be able to live off if need be to ensure they meet their mortgage repayments. They won the case that it is reasonable for a lender to use that as part of the tool for assessing how much someone can borrow. And I made some notes. Justice Perham found that there was nothing intellectually or legally wrong with the lenders relying on the household expenditure measurement when assessing whether a loan is suitable for a borrower. So I think I think that was that's a good outcome. Basically, the lenders are asking for a detailed understanding of living expenses, certainly from brokers, every single time. It would seem as though Maybe sometimes the lenders, the loan product sales staff are not doing it based on the, this case, but you know it's certainly a requirement every single time. And so 
I think lending is as rigid and strict as I've ever seen it in two decades. And I don't see that changing. You know, the benchmark rate has come down, so that means people can borrow more money. But I think the rigidity of how they're, they're assessing loans, I don't see that changing a lot. Yep. And I, I think it would be nice to, to have, I guess, a little bit more of a, of a stable environment. I know that people like yourself have had to navigate these issues and uh, it's, been a, it's been a tough time, especially with some of the re- rhetoric leading up to the election with you know, the trails and all that sort of stuff. Let's move to the property side of things. You, you mentioned that sort of the, the property analytics came a little bit after getting into the finance sort of thing, but I'm assuming that after a few transactions, you, people are, are asking you questions about property and what you should buy and that sort of thing. Where, where, did, the, where did sort of the idea to, to move to, to creating property plans as part of your business come from? It just evolved organically through trying to explore what drove property values and you know and it moved from okay well what drives property values i'm not really sure people want to know you know so let me try and understand that and then it sort of worked backwards to well people actually want to plan for their property decision making because it's not just always you know there's a lot of decisions to make even before you get to the point of determining what asset you're going to buy, such as, well, you know, what is the price range I can afford? Is my next decision going to be a home or investment property and why? And if it is one or the other, how does that impact my future property decisions? And so then I started to see that people had all these other questions that even came before deciding on, on which property to buy. And there was, as I discovered, there was no no industry set up to help people make and work through those decisions because the property industry was unregulated and the financial planning industry basically was not able to give advice on property, so really steered clear of it. I think if there is any theme of the this podcast, it's probably a bit difficult to tie any sort of unifying theory. But I guess we, we do like to talk about having a plan and having the property fit the plan rather than just talking about the, the property. I talk about, you know, the veggies and the dessert sort of thing. So the, the dessert or the ice cream is, is the actual property, the area, you know, the hot spot if we want to get sensational about it. But Having the veggies before you have the sweet stuff is is the plan. You're here because you're a veggies man, right? Because that that I think is is interesting, and I think that's what people need. As much as you know, it's not as exciting to talk about, or, or you know, take your date out for a bowl of greens. It's much more important than the sugar rotting stuff of you know where the mining towns are and that sort of stuff. What what are the veggies, and and how do we how do we go about the the plan, and and what are some of the bones? behind creating a strategy? Yeah, well, I like your analogy, by the way. <laughs> and I think if you eat enough veggies, then you can have ice cream as well. So <laughs> Exactly. So essentially, the bones or veg- the veggies, if you like, is starting with what are your goals and, and thinking long-term and working backwards because property for most people is a, is a long-term decision, plus it's the most expensive outlay we tend to make in our lives. And 
if we don't have a long-term view when we're making the decision and lining, aligning it with our goals and future, it's also the only, only asset class we live in. So it has these great complexities that can really derail a, someone's strategy and, and not only your, your finances, but also your lifestyle and where you can live. So we really, we start with a bunch of questions which we've designed, which is about 40 or 50 questions that encompass goal setting and long-term thinking and, you know, what you would like retirement or as we call it, flexibility stage of life to look like. And, you know, if you're a first-time buyer, maybe we'll, we'll look more 10 years out rather than right through to sort of age 65, you know, mapping out where do you see yourself living in a home if you do plan to purchase a future home, you know, what do you want that house to look like? You know, what do you want the location to look like? What are your priorities? So we really dig into what we call the lifestyle pathway as well as the investment pathway because they need to work together. That's the starting point. Typically, does it sort of boil down to a dollar figure, like a, a retirement, I guess, nest egg or, or income stream? Is, is that sort of... Is that maybe a bit too simplistic or, or is a lot of it around, you know, I need to be able to live on 80 grand a year when I retire, so I need X amount of assets at X age? Yeah, ultimately we want to boil it down to something quite simple like that. So an income dollar figure, you know, what does an asset figure need to look like to be able to reach that income dollar figure? So that's for, say, your goals for retirement or the flexibility stage of life. And it's the same for your next property decision is, you know, you start with the detail and then work in to get down to the, the simple numbers. We call them, we help people set money goals. And ultimately, it's your money goals, which is really your comfort level in, and, and that's personal and different for all of us. How much surplus cash flow do we want after we purchase our next property and how much available funds, cash redraw do we want to have access to and do we feel comfortable with so we can have a good night's sleep after our next property purchase and really that determines the price point rather than what a lender will tell me I can borrow and you know and the reality we, we help people figure out okay what is their actual surplus cash flow you know we review how they manage their money currently we review their mortgage strategy and give them guidance on how to set up a money management system, set up their mortgage strategy, work through whether the next decision makes sense to be the home or investment and, you know, the price range driven off the money goals. And that's quite a process and journey, you know, and that process can take a number of weeks and we provide a number of reports along that journey. And so it really is a process of working down to what ultimately ends up being, I guess, the ice cream, the selection strategy. <laughs> but you need to get into that detail and to then come to the simplicity, if you like, at the end of it. Well, that was going to be my, my next question. I mean, you must admit that uh, that sort of stuff, whilst it's it's absolutely critical, that's the point we're trying to make. It's it's boring, right? It's it's not the fun. It's not the fun stuff. It's it's not you know. I heard this property market over here is going to boom, and it's already getting six percent yield, and it's predicted to do twelve percent capital growth in the next. 12 months. I mean, that's the stuff that, that property investors buy magazines for and listen to podcasts for. Obviously,
obviously listenership is is one of the poor metrics that we're chasing on on this episode and in general. But how important is it to go through these veggies and the boring stuff? And 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 typically, what, what do you sort of see for people that do the sort of diligent upfront stuff compared to the people that are just chasing the dessert at the end of it? I think things like hot spotting and the dessert they're they're the short they're short term outcomes or views and and I think often when we're looking short term that's when we make our mistakes and not always but often that's where the you know the spruikers or the dodgier operators are going to play in as well because it's more about marketing and spruiking and hype yeah there's more danger in that space and the better you plan you don't, you don't need to plan to the point that you have paralysis by analysis but these are huge decisions for most people not only financially but also where you're going to raise your family and possibly live for a long time as well as investing so i think it absolutely makes sense to do that due diligence and analysis and get yourself set up so that you can make decisions with great confidence and from what I, you know, definitely my experience is that the people who tend to get the best outcomes are more diligent in working through the veggies process. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the veggies process, that sort of 40 or 50 questions that, that you run through. How, how does that sort of typically work with a client, so I'm guessing that you know you've mentioned f- even factoring in where they want to live as their principal place of residence and, and what they want that to look like. So, so typically for for someone that's never done it before, or even someone that's that's listening and and thinking, geez, wouldn't be a bad idea for me to have some rough plan. What what are some of the bones? Some of the typical things that we should be looking at. We have three steps. Step one's plan, step two strategy, step three then select. So with with the planning, it's we get people to articulate what their values are, understand their risk profile, which is important when you're in a couple and you might have a different appetite for risk. Review how you manage your money. It all starts with having and trapping surplus cash flow. Uh, you, you can't grow wealth without doing that. Setting your goals and having long-term thinking and so that you know that, that's where I'd suggest to people to start with step one of, of plan and then in strategy get clear on your mortgage strategy you know there are hundreds of ways that you can optimize your tax deductions optimize the use of offset accounts optimize your ability to hold your existing properties as you accumulate future properties you know there are lots of ways you can manage your risk through your mortgage strategy, you know, and you can set up a really effective money management system that interacts with your mortgage as well. So review that and and set yourself up because their mortgage strategy, everyone's trained to focus on the interest rate. And that's the now decision. That's the ice cream. That's the short term. Whereas if you have a view of future property decisions you might make, there are actually decisions you need to make today that can make you and save you thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars, actually, if you're able to keep properties as you accumulate future properties. But you need to put those strategies in place today. And well, a lot of mortgage professionals aren't really aware of that, let alone consumers. So you also need to have a long-term view 
with your mortgage strategy and, and aligning it with your property plan, you know, and then really thinking through what you want out of a future home, you know, is your next, thinking through whether your next decision should be lifestyle or investments and if you go one way or the other, how would that impact the alternate pathway? So th- these are all the things we work through in the strategy stage and then, you know, really your price point and your strategy then should determine your location selection. And location is a bit like the property. It's a bit of the ice cream. People tend to jump to location, but really those other steps should ultimately determine your location. And it's one of the reasons we don't have buyer's agents in-house anymore because it then enables us to really have a clear view and consider the whole country when it comes to determining the appropriate location for one of our clients. But that's the journey. You know, there's some of the, I guess, some of the vegetables within the plan and strategy steps of the journey. That's a very good menu of the vegetables there, David. Um, this this analogy is getting a bit long in the tooth. We might we might drop it from here on in. Look, aside from obviously running a, a successful business, you, you've also invested a lot of human capital and I and I presume currency capital on some of the intellectual property that you've built behind the property planners. Can you run us through some of the technology and some of the things that uh, you've developed and you're constantly working on? Yeah, one of the things we've developed is a location application whereby we, over a number of years, we've analysed which data points we believe are the most effective to review when assessing a location and across all the different data providers. And then we have broken them down into segments, so livability, financial statistics, supply and demand and demographics. And then we have about 60 to 80 data points within those four headings that we've given them. And we've built an app that then picks them up at any given time from the different data providers. So then we can analyze any suburb in the country, basically. So we built that with, we had a digital consultant and developers in India. And so that's one of the technological investments we've made, which certainly helps us in our analysis. Yeah, well, I mean that's uh, it's pretty powerful tools if you're you're looking in the assets uh, selection, and obviously it, it's interesting you hear that you don't have the buyer's agent in house because the results of all that really dictate where you're going, not just for you know a suburb near your office, a suburb in Australia, I guess, and and that's something that is I guess another theme of the podcast is that people tend to invest in areas that they know which typically are are around the corner and it it sort of leads me into a question I wanted to ask you about investor psychology I mean you mentioned that this is a a pretty important outlay in investment property or the property that we we live in it's likely to be our biggest investment why do you think we're we're so willing to spend hundreds of thousands on an investment property with a bit of a you know not often not much more than a vague idea that it's going to grow in value and that buying an investment property is in inherently a good thing for sort of financial, uh, I guess, setting up for our financial future? Oh, I think there's a range of reasons. Look, it's a pretty, it's a pretty difficult thing to buy a property. It takes time and effort and, and a lot of emotion around, you know, borrowing money and having to take on a mortgage and, you know, spend the money we've saved 
and if you're buying a home, you know, and if you're buying it with a partner. So there's a lot of emotional capital, if you like, that goes into the process. And so I think that to get it done means that emotional baggage of trying to buy a property is out of the way. And I think that can be a reason why we, you know, we can make property decisions sometimes that are quite hasty and we haven't done the analysis into why or how or the financial outcomes proportionately to what we might, you know, buying a car or, yeah, buying something for buying some furniture. So, it's a really good po- point. I, I think that if you just sort of had a piece of paper and you had two people side by side and, and one owned their house outright and the other couple owned their house outright and an investment property, people would objectively say, well, you know, couple number two are winning in the financial race, right? But that could be an asset that's costing them money or they haven't set up properly and they're likely to have to sell before they realise any capital gains. But it does sort of seem like if you if you buy one property or uh, spoke recently about this sort of race to get 10 properties it's this massive milestone for so-called successful investors to get to 10 and they just they just must have, have won the investment game if they've got 10 properties but of course they're not all created equal right no yeah exactly and I, I like to say we want to help you buy as few properties as required to meet your goals. <laughs> more, more classical David Johnston boring advice. We want you to buy less. We want you to eat your veggies. But uh, it just just happens to be that often the the most sort of sensible and, and obvious and boring advice is, is is really the golden stuff we're talking about in an asset class that is a, is a long term play, right? Oh, I think so, and I, I'm a bit of a believer in the keeping life simple as you can and you know you've got children Mike and you know as you get older you have more responsibilities and life seems to get more complex so the more you can keep it simple the better I think. Absolutely and I'm assuming that you've had a lot of investors come through your doors what are some of the things that you see in common with the people that are doing it well compared to the ones that you, you know, you just, they come through and they've got properties that you just don't think are performing or they haven't structured or they haven't planned correctly? I think it probably is the most common theme is that they've spent more time thinking about the decision they're making. They've spent more time planning, considering why and how, and then executed. Yeah, I think they've had more of a focus on the... The where and the what, perhaps? Yeah, the where and the what, the financial outcomes and less of a focus on, as you were talking about before, the number of properties. And how how do you see us transacting in in property as investors in the next sort of five to ten years obviously we've we've seen um, some artificial intelligence coming through obviously you mentioned that you're you're pulling data from a variety of different sources and it seems that that data is becoming more and more sophisticated but of course we've got these automated valuations which can be a little bit misleading and and difficult do you do you think we'll still be investing in property the same in the next five or ten years I think it will be reasonably similar, but I think it's going to be harder to buy as many properties. And I think with the property 
value growth. But I don't think it we're going to have that consistent high level of capital growth that we've had. And I think with values getting higher and as long as stamp duty is in place, people are becoming more aware. So people are becoming more aware of, of the costs to sell and the benefit to hold. So, you know, we're seeing a reduction in how often properties are sold, particularly established properties. So that means there's going to be less stock. And unless they make it easier because the big killer is stamp duties to transact, I think it's going to be harder to accumulate as many properties. You know, that's what we already sort of work towards. I mean, I suggest to people that you you only really need, including the family home, two to five properties. And that's not to say you can't try and buy more, and we do have clients with more, but you only need two to five well-selected properties to put yourself in a strong position come retirement. I mean, technology is going to have an impact but I think it's still a long way away. I mean, it's it's human behaviour at the end of the day. Mm. And I can't see how data sets for a long time are going to be absolutely precise in predicting at the end of the day how humans are going to be, behave towards individual properties. That, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because you, you mentioned in the beginning that it's the only asset class we live in, right? So straight away, it's very difficult to model because it, it has emotions attached to it and, and human beings who, who economists love to sort of analyze as behaving completely rationally. But we all, <laughs> we're all driven by different, different things and different fears. So yeah, that, that is a difficult one to, to predict. Now, it would be remiss of me on the audience to not talk about something that I guess isn't classified as, as all of the boring planning stuff. But it sort of triggered me when you mentioned, you know, two to five. Typically, I would say that that's a, a bit less than most commentators and certainly media articles would say. So I presume we're talking about some, you know, higher value, more blue chip sorts of properties. But I'm just interested in where you see some good potential for investors at the moment. I'm not necessarily meaning you know in the next 12 months but just areas where you think investors have some good opportunities to get in that's going to outperform the market in the next sort of 5 10 20 years well <laughs> again the red lights on david so <laughs> yeah yeah with our advice i try to create a platform for us to be you know, agnostic, and I try to develop a structure that enables us to do our very best to remove biases. And I think all locations, well, let's say most locations, most capital cities and, and even certainly larger regional cities like Newcastle where, where you live are going to have outperforming properties. So if you've got a long-term view, and I think, you know, 30 in property, 30 years is long term, 20 years is mid term and 10 years is short term. Then it's actually about developing the property selection strategy around you. And if you already own some properties in Newcastle, well, then we probably should be looking to diversify outside of Newcastle for you, for example. And I think the fundamentals of what make certain suburbs outperform over the long run and certain property types 
are reasonably consistent. You know, that's my view. And so understanding that, then it, it it's not about, for me anyway, it's not about predicting this location or that location, really. It's about making sure that the property you purchase next is putting your very best foot forward. And yes, you, you need to factor in where property cycles sit at the moment you're purchasing. But that's just one of many factors that should determine the location that's right for you. I mean, high level, I think, in terms of locations, yeah, I think I'm on record already. So with the red light on. May as well, mate, if you're already there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, I think Melbourne and Sydney, because of their population size, because of the employment drivers, because of the, the higher income opportunities, they're more likely to continue. And also because we're about managing risk, I would be endeavouring for most people to have a property in Melbourne or Sydney within their portfolio, ideally, if they can afford to get in at a at a reasonable level. But if their price point doesn't allow it, then we need to look elsewhere. But certainly one of the key factors I look at from a location perspective is the size of the city, the population of the city and working downwards from there. That's not the only factor, but that that is one of the key drivers for location selection. I think that is very sensible advice. And I think based on what we discussed in the beginning, it would have been scandalous for you to just answer with Ballarat or something like that. (laughs) I should take a a moment to plug your podcast as well, which is far better than this one. So I recommend people um, jump on board with that. That's the property planner, buyer and professor available in all good iTunes, whatever's right now. I won't agree with you. That's far better than this one, by the way. But <laughs> The audio quality, at we least, given your studio <laughs> nature, mate. We've got to give you that gong. But for people that are wanting to, to get in touch with you outside of the podcast, how does a conversation with yourself, if they're looking for your services, generally start and how do they find you? Yeah, so we've got our website, propertyplanning.com.au. They can reach me on LinkedIn and uh, we have a Facebook page and podcast, as you mentioned. So they're, they're the primary ways to reach out to us. From there, we um, one of the team will touch base with them for a discovery call, and then we aim to sit down with them and discuss their goals and yeah, goals and needs. Beautiful. And if there's one piece of advice, David, that you could give to property investors, what's that going to be? One piece of advice. I would say is think long term and don't take shortcuts. Take the time to get organised and understand your situation so you can then make decisions with confidence. Beautiful. We'll lock that in. I I can't see anyone suing you on that. No disclaimer (laughs) required, mate. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me and sharing your wisdom today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on. Cheers. Cheers.